good to see a full house. Good to see a full house. If you would, if you haven't yet, turn to Genesis chapter 2. I'll be reading there starting in verse 21. Again, I would like to say thank you to our visitors for being with us this morning. You're our honored guest. We are delighted to have you with us. Brother Jacob's going to bring us a lesson here shortly. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Good morning, and grace to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish I uh, had uh, John Moore or John Gray's booming voice uh, this morning with some of the speaker issues that we're having, but um, I know for some, maybe that means my voice goes out quicker, and so the, the lesson's shorter. Um, so some of you, I, probably some of y'all are behind this uh, microphone thing. Uh, But before we get started, I I do want to, uh, again, encourage you and remind you for our upcoming uh, community blood drive that we're trying to put on. I was talking to Regina earlier. Uh, We have 39 of the 50 that we need to host the event on March 23rd. So if you can help uh, donate, that would be greatly appreciated. And I know that we can can get that number uh, not only within our congregation but within our community. So if you can let people know about that, uh, we would greatly appreciate it as we try and do that as a, as a means of serving our community. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 7 through 9, the Lord says this, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Notice within this verse that God is saying that how we think about things and how we go about living our lives is often at contrast with how God thinks about things and how he expects us to live our lives. If you notice previously in the first verse it says, let the wicked man forsake his way, let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. So way and thoughts of the, of the wicked. And then he says, because my ways and my thoughts are greater and higher and better than that. In God's holiness what he values, the way that he instructs of us transcends our thinking about things. 
And because of that, it shouldn't surprise us when as fallen and broken people, it shouldn't surprise us when God's will and God's way conflicts with my will and my way. That really shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because God says, my way's higher, my way's greater, my way is better. And who we choose to follow in that moment, who we choose to follow in that moment when our will and our way conflicts with God's will and God's way, who I choose to follow in that moment, shows whether we are disciples of the Lord or whether we are disciples of ourselves. And I think that that conflict is witnessed to its greatest degree, that conflict of wills and ways. It's probably witnessed to its greatest degree in Jesus' teaching on marriage, on divorce, and on remarriage. And, I, and, and as I thought about this lesson, I thought, well, why is it? Why, why does our will and our way conflict so easily and so quickly with Jesus and his teaching on this? I think one of the reasons is because we have simply a false view of Jesus. We have a Jesus in our heads that wants us to be happy and comfortable in this life. Uh, we, 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 we follow a Jesus in our own minds that never demands much of us, more than coming and sitting in a pew on Sunday, that he never will really expect grand sacrifices of us, and that if he intrudes on our personal lives, then he's gone too far. Jesus, you stay in your Sunday box, and I'll take care of everything else. And so sometimes we have a false view of Jesus. And so whenever Jesus comes in and he talks about really tough stuff that we're going to talk about this morning, we're like, wait a second, that's not the Jesus I know. And it conflicts with that. I think it also conflicts because of cultural values. We, we live in a culture in which divorce is not only common and accepted, I would say that where we are in our culture, it's expected and sometimes lauded and sometimes applauded by our culture. And so we just kind of have this assumed reality about how things are and how things should be and what our rights are as individuals that it's hard for us to conceive of something as radically different as what Jesus is talking about in his teaching on marriage and divorce. It's hard for us to, to grasp. Of course, you have to realize, though, that whenever Jesus spoke these things that we're going to talk about this morning, he spoke them in a culture that was just as rampant in its divorce as our culture is. It was just as easy to get a divorce in Roman times as it is in American times. And, and people were able to easily access it within even Israel. And so our own cultural values sometimes clash with God's teaching. And then thirdly, of course, one of the reasons that it comes into conflict is because it is a deeply personal issue. The subject of divorce and marriage is deeply... I, 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 would, I would be surprised. I would be surprised if there was a single family in here this morning that has not been affected by divorce in some way. I would be surprised. Because I imagine that 
within your own family, uh, maybe even within your own life, uh, you've experienced that. And the, the heartbreak and the, and the difficulties that, that come with that, it's personal. It's deeply personal. It's, it's painful. It's, it's very emotional. Uh, marriage is the most intimate part of our lives. And it affects not only us, but our children and our grandchildren. And so it's a subject that we would rather sidestep. In fact, if I had to guess, I think it's probably a subject that we would rather not talk about on a Sunday morning. It's probably a subject that we wish Jesus wouldn't stick his nose in. But you know, whenever I started preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, I knew that this lesson was eventually going to come. And brethren, not only does it come, but it comes twice in the Gospel of Matthew. But I, I want to let you know as, as we begin uh, this subject, if you're sitting here uh, divorced and have gone through that, and, and we have many within our congregation, I want you to know that the Lord loves you and, and that we love you. And the things that we talk about this morning, I know that many of us are in agreement on, but I just want to say that beforehand, that he loves you, that I love you, and we want to move forward with this. And, and, and because of this, we want to treat this subject with compassion, we want to treat it with respect, but we also want to have clarity. We don't want to allow our views of the truth to be swayed by personal experience. That's, that's tough to do, isn't it? It's tough to look at a situation and say, okay, this is what the truth is, even though it affects me deeply and it hurts and it affects me personally. We want to show compassion, but we want to show compassion without compromise. And in many ways, Jesus was already setting us up Jesus was already setting us up for this subject. If you think about it, he's already talked about, before we even get to this, in Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32, if you want to be turning your Bibles, that's where we'll focus as we continue our study through Matthew. He's already been setting us up for this because he's already talked about issues that come up in marriage. He's already talked about some major issues that deeply affect marriage and that oftentimes will lead to divorce, anger, Bitterness, lust, discontent. He's already talked about those things. And so some of those are the key issues that lead into what we're talking about today. Right after this, he's going to talk about being serious about the vows that you make. And being a person of honesty and integrity. So sandwiched between these issues that affect our marriage and on the other side, being faithful to your vows... Right in the middle is Jesus talking about marriage and, and divorce. I don't think that's by accident that that's done. And he's already also talked about things that we might have to sacrifice in order to inherit eternal life. He talked about cutting off a hand and plucking out an eye. Something that's deeply personal and something that's painful. And so if, when we come to this teaching in Matthew chapter 5, we're already prepared because we already know that the teaching of Christ is far more demanding than we previously probably thought. And yet we have to also recognize this. We have to understand this. We have to see this. And I want you to hear me clearly because this, has to, this really has to determine the rest of the lesson. What we have to see Jesus teaching here is Jesus restoring us to something that is better and not simply restricting us. God, Jesus in his teaching is trying to restore the world 
to something better and not simply being restrictive for the sake of being restrictive. Jesus came to make a new way, to set things right. And sometimes that's painful. Whenever you've had a wound or a broken bone, it's not fun getting that put back in place. And sadly, that's the case here at times. So I want us to jump in as we just study this lesson that we're simply just calling Jesus and divorce. We want to be clear about what we're talking about this morning. So let's look at Matthew 5. There's two passages we want to look at. Our main focus is going to be Matthew 5, but we'll also go to Matthew 19. Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now let's turn over to Matthew 19. It's on the screen, if you like. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause or for any reason? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. All right, so let's dive into this. First, we want to see that Jesus engages with the common practice of the day. And that sets the context for this entire discussion. Why is Jesus talking about this in Matthew 5? And why did the Pharisees even ask him this question in Matthew chapter 19? Now, in the previous verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave us a deeper understanding of the law. He, he said, listen, it's not just about adultery, but it's about adultery in the heart. It's not just about murder, thou shalt not murder, but it's about hate within the heart. Hate paves the road for dehumanizing someone and for ultimately killing them. But now he clarifies a certain law, and he actually corrects the present practice that was going on that was based upon a Mosaic passage. And the discussion that Jesus is having here, and the reference that he makes when he says, you have heard it said, and, and, and the, the passage that the Pharisees are hearkening back to in Matthew 19.9 is Deuteronomy chapter 24. And Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4 says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her off out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord. 
This is the passage that Jesus and that the Pharisees are referencing and discussing when they say, you've heard it said, you shall give your wife a certificate of divorce. Um, If what Moses is saying here is that if you had a reason, now we'll talk about exactly what he's saying, but he's saying if you had a reason to divorce your wife, you had to give her a certificate to say exactly why you were divorcing her, why you were divorcing this woman. To le- and the reason for that, and here's the incredible thing, we don't have time to discuss all that, the real reason for that was to protect the women, was to protect the women from capricious men who had the authority and the power during this time so that she could go out and she could say, listen, I wasn't put away because of this reason, this reason, or this reason. I was just put away because of this reason. So I, I'm, I'm eligible to, to be married to, or there's no reason that you shouldn't consider me. And so Jesus says... In Matthew 19 and verse 8, he said this was because done because of the hardness of your heart, meaning that they weren't willing to accept God's true will for marriage. That's what he's saying. Your hearts were hard. Whenever scripture says someone's heart was hard, that means they weren't willing to accept what God's true will was. And so he says because at this moment of time, because what God was doing in history, Moses gave an allowance, and God allowed that for a certain season. And that is what he's saying. But then... They had taken that allowance. Did you notice, by the way, how often in Deuteronomy 24 it uses a really important word, if? You notice how many times it says if, 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 if? This was a passage dealing with a very specific set of circumstances. But the Jews had taken this allowance and made it into a right. This is our right to divorce whoever we want for whatever reason we want. Like any contract, it can be dissolved. Now, The question was, what does indecency mean? Because you notice he said, if you find some indecency in her, then you can write a certificate of divorce. So what does that word indecency mean? That is the context for Jesus' day. There were two thoughts, two strains of thought from two specific rabbis uh, within the time of Christ as to what the word indecency meant. And these were referred to as, the, there was the school of Shammai, and there was the school of Hillel. And maybe you've heard of them uh, before. The school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. They had two different views. The school of Shammai was the conservative of the two. And it said that you could only divorce your wife if it was done for some type of unchastity, some type of indecency, some type of immodesty. So it had to be a serious reason as to why you were divorcing her. On the other hand, the school of Hillel was much more progressive. For them, any reason was sufficient for divorcing your wife. If she burnt the toast, you could divorce her. Uh, Seriously, that was one of the reasons that was given by the rabbis. If you didn't like her cooking, you could divorce her. If you found someone more attractive, you could divorce her. That was within the rabbinical teaching of Hillel. And so this is the context. This is why the Pharisees come and say, can we divorce for any reason? Can we divorce for any cause? They're directly asking a question in relationship to the school of Hillel. And it forms that question in Matthew 19.3, is it lawful for us to divorce for, notice, any cause? Now, you need to recognize that because the cause or the reason as to why you're divorcing is what he is talking about here. 
and he's questioning the legitimacy of that. The legitimacy of that. Now, how would our culture answer this question? How would our culture answer this question? Is it lawful to divorce for any uh, divorce one's spouse or one's wife for any cause? We would say what? Yes. We would say not only can you divorce them without any cause, um, you don't even have to really have the other partner's consent. No fault divorce, meaning they're not really at fault. We just don't like them anymore. We just don't. We're just not compatible. We just don't get along. So our culture would say yes. Yes, we can divorce for any reason. And the people in Jesus' day, the vast majority of people would have said yes to this question as well. Although the deference in their culture would have been given to the man, but not always. And as I mentioned before, Deuteronomy has this big if. If this, then this. If this, then this. And Jesus comes and he says, forget about the if. That's what he's saying. Forget about the if, because really, from the beginning, divorce was never God's intention. That wasn't his plan. That wasn't part of his plan. And we'll talk about the exception in a moment, but first we need to get this into our mind. This was never a part of God's plan. And that's whenever, whenever people have to go through a, a divorce and they have to go through the pain of that, it feels so unnatural. And it feels painful and it's full of heartbreak. Because it hurts. Because that wasn't God's plan from the beginning. It hurts. And so Jesus is coming and then he says, I want to show you exactly what is happening within. Whenever you divorce and remarry, I want to show you exactly what's happening. Because you've taken this exception. You, you've extended it far beyond what it was intended. God allowed it for a season because you weren't really ready to accept the fullness of his revelation. But notice what he says, but now I say unto you. Now, this is what he's been saying the entire time, right? You've heard it said this way, but I'm saying unto you. He's correcting, he's, he's helping us to understand the true revelation of God's will. And so now we'll see the correction that Jesus offers for this. Jesus corrects their assumptions about the Mosaic allowance. And he says simply this, actually... If you have remarried after you have divorced, other than sexual immorality, and we'll talk, we'll get to that exception. He says, in reality, he says, you're in an adulterous union. And, and the way that Jesus would have put it is you're in an unlawful relationship from God's perspective. Now that's earth shattering. If we're being completely honest, that is startling. And again, here's these two wills and the way that we think about things and how things should be and God's way and how he says things are. And yet we see in other passages that what Jesus is teaching here is in alignment with other passages. For example, in Mark chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, when John the Baptist is addressing Herod, notice what it says. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Notice this, because he had married her. So obviously, Philip had gone through a divorce with his wife, and Herodias had married her. And notice what John says. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful 
it is illegitimate. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not lawful. And John got his head cut off because of it. I hope that's not the result of this sermon. <clears throat> the other passage is Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, Romans 7 verses 1 through 3. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. He's using the law as a metaphor here, but he makes a point. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with but another man while her husband is alive. Um, your translation probably says when she's married. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress in that instance because her husband has passed away. But if she would have been married while her other husband was alive, considered an adulteress. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And so what we're seeing Jesus teach here is in line with the rest of the New Testament teaching, even though it's hard for us to swallow, even though it's hard for us to accept. And Jesus corrects the thinking by going all the way back to the beginning. They're going back to Deuteronomy 24. But notice in Matthew 19, he says, it wasn't so in the beginning, in verses 4 through 6. He created them male and female. And his point is, is that God meant for marriage to be a lifelong binding commitment, a covenant between husband and wife. We talked a lot about covenant here within the context of class. And so, again, when we see this, we view this as prohibitive. We view this as restrictive. We figure that we have the right to choose who we want, and Jesus is simply being too hard. He's being too restrictive. Brethren, can we honestly say, as we look at our nation, and as we look at the culture around us, and we look at the broken homes, and the financial fights, and the bitterness, and the hatred within our world that often results from divorce, can we honestly say that we know better than Jesus? Can we honestly say that we have a better way? That, that, that we've got this more figured out than Jesus does? It's important for us to remember something about marriage. And this is something, this is something really hard for us to wrap our minds around. For Jesus, marriage was beneficial. Marriage was a blessing. But marriage was not ultimate. Right? And in our minds, marriage is not only ultimate, it's a right. But for Jesus, it was necessary in the present world, but it's not a part of the future. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, it says, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, I have my own perception of that passage and what he's saying there. But he is saying that this current order is going to be far different. So, so marriage is not ultimate for Jesus. Jesus, by the way, if you remember, wasn't married. So marriage for him was not ultimate. It's a gift. It's an opportunity afforded to some, but not everyone will partake of it. And thus, it, since it is a gift, it has to be dictated by the one who gave the gift, which is God. Now, 
as we've mentioned a couple of times, Jesus has an exception for divorce. And it's something that we need to discuss. So let's look briefly at the exception that he offers. The exception to this that Jesus speaks of, and by the way, here's what's interesting about this. This is the only time that Jesus gives this exception. He doesn't give the exception in Mark and in Luke. He doesn't talk about it in John, but he doesn't give... The, he doesn't really discuss it as much in John. But, but in, he doesn't, uh, in, in Mark and in Luke, he doesn't give this exception. He just says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. It's, it's very bare. Matthew's the only one that gives this exception. The reason I think that Matthew gives the exception is because Mark was most likely written earlier than Matthew, and there probably would have been an understanding that this was an exception. But here Matthew wants to line it out a little bit more clearly. And he says the one exception is sexual immorality. Now sexual immorality can be defined as unsanctioned sexual intercourse. It's intimacy that only can exist within a marriage that should be offered to your spouse and to your spouse alone. And so he says if this occurs, then you can't. And the fact he says that Jesus says except, the fact that he says except this would mean that the one who put their spouse away was free to remarry without the condemnation of adultery. Because he's saying, except for this, this is the one exception here. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to. There's been many marriages that have have gone through unfaithfulness and have gone through uh, this infidelity and have recovered from that. But others can't, and others don't, and others aren't unwilling. But on the flip side, Jesus says, whoever marries the divorced person and the implication is the one who has been put away for this reason would be committing an adulterous union as well and again this is a, a very difficult pill for us to swallow it's, it's hard teaching for us because what that would mean is that there are relationships that are unlawful in God's eyes uh, that, that aren't allowed in God's eyes and from his perspective And at times, there might be relationships that we even have to get out of in order to be pleasing, in order to truly repent of living within adultery, with being in an adulterous union. Now, that sounds so scandalous to us, and yet we would expect that very same thing, for example, if we had a committed homosexual couple come into our congregation and they were ready to receive the gospel and they wanted to receive the gospel, but they were... Married by the state's eyes, they have been married for 20 years, they have three children. And what would we say to them in that moment if they said, we, we want to obey the gospel and we want to, to, to be saved? What would we say? We would sadly have to say, well, we, we want you to and the Lord loves you and he wants you to. But something's got to change here. And it's going to be tough and it's going to be difficult. Or, or for example, if a polygamous couple came into the congregation a man with two wives, and they wanted, and they had, uh, he had children by both wives, and they wanted to obey the gospel. What would we say in that moment? And, and, and I'm just bringing these up as examples because I want to show our inconsistency. Uh, we mentioned a little bit earlier that we want to look at situations with compassion, but without compromise, and we want to view situations with clarity. And the reason that we don't often view this particular situation with clarity is because it affects us so personally. But the world notices, by the way. The world notices when we say no to this and no to this 
but then we don't say anything to this situation. They notice the inconsistency in us. And yet Jesus warned us that following him might just cost us everything, didn't he? And I, and I don't say that lightly, and I don't think Jesus said it lightly either. But in Matthew 10, verses 37 and 38, he said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sadly, sin brings lasting consequences, sometimes long-lasting. It doesn't mean that, you're, that, that you aren't forgiven, that you're not saved, that you can't live a holy and happy life before God. But it does mean that, that there are consequences at times, and, there are, and we're going to talk about that. Jesus recognizes that. And there are situations in life that, that have to be lived in within the context of God's truth that sometimes are tough. But I want to say this. We should not view Jesus' teaching as God punishing the guilty party. How we should view it, if our minds are trying to be aligned with the will of God, is that God is deeply committed to covenant faithfulness. He is deeply committed to covenant faithfulness. And he knows that because of our wickedness, and because of our depravity, and because of our sinfulness, that if he did not have a high law concerning this, we would take advantage of it, just as we have always done. And number two, we need to view this as God's vindication of the innocent. Sometimes the, the, what gets lost in these discussions is the person who is innocent, who remain committed, who remain faithful, and the heartbreak that they're now having to go through. Now, sometimes we just focus on the one who hasn't been, and, so, and, and we get caught up and we forget that there are others here involved. But this is a tough teaching, and it's difficult particularly in our world. So how can it be implemented within the real world? So let's talk about that briefly. How can it be implemented? As I mentioned, we want to have compassion without compromising truth. But what that means, in order for us to not compromise truth, it means this. Just because something is impractical, just because something is difficult, doesn't mean that it's not true. A lot of times when we look at something, we say, well, that's so impractical, that's so absurd, that's so ridiculous, it can't possibly be true. But what we see in the teachings of Jesus is that maybe the more impractical it is, the more true it might be. And so just because something is difficult doesn't mean that it's not true. But number one, when it comes to implementation, there needs to be some personal evaluation. There needs to be some personal evaluation. From our study, we understand that there are certain situations that are black and white. There are certain situations that are, that are obvious, that are, we see them as, as it's clear cut, it's easy to see within the light of scripture, who's innocent, who's guilty, who has the right to remarry, who doesn't. Some of those situations are clear. Some of those situations aren't. If I'm being completely honest with you, some of those situations are difficult to weed through. And so what I want to challenge you, if, if you're looking at this and listening to this lesson and struggling with it, you need to evaluate your marriage from the facts that you know, that only you know. In light of scripture and your conscience, the counsel of godly elders. 
and, and, and so there needs to be some personal evaluation. And I've come to recognize that the more that I've talked to people about complex issues when it came to divorce and things of that nature. And that's not an attempt to avoid a difficult situation. It's just trying to recognize that there are complexities within the marriage and divorce situation that times can make it more difficult to discern. And so we need to recognize that and we need to do personal evaluation. Number two, we need to provide community within the church. If the church is going to remain committed to the truth, then it must be a community for the single and for the divorced. The church must be an extension of love and compassion to those who are going through this, to those who are struggling with this. If we want to challenge our fellow Christians to live as Christ has called them, then we must provide the strength that they need. We, we need to make them a part of our lives. Uh, we need, if someone is single, if someone's divorced, they're not a pariah to our church. They shouldn't be anyway. When you go out to lunch, you invite them. Make them a part of your community and make them a part of your family. And, and even though a church might not practice that, it still doesn't change the truth, but it can make it much more difficult for people to live committed to Christ if they don't have a strong community to surround them and to help them. And then thirdly, we need to promote the truth. It should be obvious from, this, obvious from this lesson that the decisions that we make, even when we are younger, can have longer lasting consequences than we ever intended. And so it's important for our children to hear these truths when they're young. I hope that some of our young people are listening. And I, and I hope that they're, they're paying attention because I don't want them to leave this church when they're older and think, I never heard God's high view of marriage and his high view of, of covenant faithfulness. I, I hope that they understand that. If I only knew is a sad statement to hear, but it's one I've heard before. And so we must do all that we can to guard everyone, who, everyone that we can against making decision, decisions which could influence them eternally. I said at the beginning of this lesson that how we respond when God's will conflicts with our will determines whether or not we truly are disciples of Jesus or disciples of ourselves. And for Jesus' early disciples, this was the case as well. Whenever Jesus' disciples heard him teaching this, they were taken aback. Like, whoa, we did not sign up. For, what do you mean, Jesus? Notice what they say in Matthew 19.10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That's their response to Jesus' teaching. And, the, and here, here's, here's a, a means of interpretation. The fact that they responded in this way should show us that what we initially feel Jesus is saying when we read this text is what Jesus is saying when we read this text. Because his own disciples, his closest confidants say, Man, if that's the case, if God's law for marriage is that strict, then we just better not marry. And do you notice Jesus' response in this moment? He doesn't, he doesn't say, no, 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 no. You, you misunderstood me. Sorry, I need to be clearer. Uh, that, that's not what I meant. I, I want you guys uh, to marry. I want you to be happy. What does he say? He says in verses 11 and 12, not everyone can receive this saying, 
but only to, to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made, made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. What's he saying there? He's saying, you're absolutely right. Not everyone can receive this. Not everyone can take this burden upon themselves. Not everyone can live within the confines of God's law for marriage. And so then he starts talking about this weird discussion about eunuchs. Why is he talking about that? A eunuch was someone who was barred from sexual intimacy, either biologically or because they have chosen that for themselves to not be in a committed relationship or, or circumstances done that to them. And so what he's saying is, is, yes, you're right. There are some who can't receive this law, and these are those people, uh, these people who are going to be single, these people who are not going to be within that marital relationship. So Jesus doesn't back down from that. He doesn't back down from it at all. And sadly, some of us who are listening to this either now or later see this teaching just as radical as Jesus' disciples did so long ago. And the church has struggled to teach this. The, the church has struggled to uphold this doctrine from the very beginning, and it still does today. But as Christians, we must recommit ourselves to holding forth God's high view of marriage for the betterment of the church, for the betterment of the world, and for the sake of our eternal destiny. We have to be committed to that. But there's a message of hope for the divorced and for the single and for those who sometimes all have to sacrifice all for the kingdom of heaven. And the message is found in Luke 18, 29 through 30. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who left his house or his wife or his brothers or his parents or his children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus' goal for us is not to give us the American dream. His goal is to give us eternal life. His goal is to save us from the wrath of God. His goal is to get our lives right, to justify us before a holy God, whose way often conflicts with our way. And the question is, are we going to follow? Are we going to receive it? Or are we going to do what we can to find a loophole? Are we going to do what we can to make ourselves comfortable? Or are we going to look at this teaching, be challenged by it, and do all that we can to submit to it, to repent, and to give our lives wholly to the Lord? I hope that you will, and I hope that if you're struggling with this or any other issue, that you will hear the entreaty of Christ, that you will have your sins forgiven by washing away those sins in the waters of baptism through faith and penitence and confession in Him. Maybe you're just needing prayers and help. Uh, we want to be that community that helps you. So whatever we can do, why don't you come as together we stand and as we sing.
looking at the elders get up to thank the preacher for a lesson. This was a tough lesson, I know, for Jacob to preach. But it was a lesson that is biblical. And we stand right behind him on everything that he said. Jacob, thank you for that lesson. I know it was difficult. But the truth is there. But we want you to know that we thank you. And as he said, if there's someone who needs to talk, the elders are available for that. And we want you.